Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, and we're a bit short-staffed today, so I'm joined today only by Sara Gon. Sara, how are you doing? No, I'm doing well. I think I think we exhausted our colleagues uh, in your absence, so uh, they've taken yeah, flight. Clearly. Um, I, I seem to have driven everyone away the moment I've returned, unfortunately. But, you know, nonetheless, thank you for being on. We will do the best that we can. Um, so this may be a slightly shorter episode than usual. Uh, seeing that there's only two of us today, but uh, we'll see how far we get. Um, let's start off with our first story today, and this is uh, a victory for Afriforum in the court system. Um, so Afriforum has been in legal battles with the EFF for a, quite a while now um, on, a various, on various issues, uh, but this particular case stems from a victory that Afriforum won in 2017, where the court ruled that the EFF was not allowed to incite people to invade what the EFF calls uh, a vacant land or free land or stolen land. Uh, the interdict <coughs> issued by the court prohibits Malema and the EFF from inciting people to trespass on private property and to illegally occupy it. The court has now finally dismissed the application of leave to appeal by the EFF, and this means that their legal options appear to be exhausted um, for overturning this interdict, meaning that the EFF will at least legally not be able to encourage people to invade land illegally. The uh, uh, Afroforum said in January 2023, Malema and the EFF applied for leave to appeal in this case with the High Court in Pretoria. The application was dismissed. They then took the matter to the Constitutional Court, which dismissed their application in March of 2023. Even after the highest court in South Africa, the Constitutional Court dismissed their application for leave to appeal. They approached the Supreme Court of Appeal. Today's definitive verdict by the court leaves Malema and the EFF with no further options for appeal. Afriforum also said that they believe that incitement to trespass and invade land is in fact a serious crime and should be treated seriously. So what do you make of this? Um, I guess one of the questions is firstly whether we think the EFF will actually abide uh, by the court ruling. Um, and secondly, you know, this is the EFF often seems to run into troubles with the court. And uh, I think they've had a little bit more success in recent years than they used to in the past. Um, but still, the courts remain a significant barrier to their kind of free operation. What, what do you make of this? Well, I think their success has largely been, and against every forum, in the Equality Court. Um, and perhaps the courts that have come after that. So it's, in other words, it's to do with freedoms of speech and hate speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It seems to have staved off a lot of the accusations against it. This is important because we know that once people have invaded land and settled on land, getting them off is terribly difficult fairly quick, you know, fairly soon into the invasion, it becomes a real, real task to uh, to have them evicted, even though they are uh, even though they are illegal. And it's, the law I, was changed. It could take months uh, for, yeah. for you to get the court interdict at, at a minimum. And whether it's private land or municipal land or whatever it is, the land is is going to be degraded over that time. And it may be land that no one should be on, such as floodplains, which is a big problem in the, in the Western Cape. But the so the importance of this is that the, the one thing they can do something about is attempts by the EFF or similar to exhort people to take over land that they don't that they don't own they don't have a right to be on and if if they can they, if they can be interdicted at that point 
it's more likely things will fall apart sooner rather than sooner rather than later and i think it's a, it's a it's a it's also an important um sort of psychological victory because the ff has always got off on being the sort of radical maverick group who you know are going to act for the unfortunate and the poor and they're going they're going to they're taking advantage of the of the laws pertaining to eviction um as I say, if they still go ahead, it's it's uh, it's it's still not going to make an eviction easier, but it means that you can aim your your uh, some of your litigation at the EFF itself for for doing this. It's 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 it's, it's criminal. So I think it's a it's a it's a good victory psychologically that they've gone. I mean, they went high court, high court, constitutional court, Supreme Court of Appeals. Um, you know, it was. I don't know that. I don't know who advised them, but you know, you, you usually right. don't go to the Supreme Court of Appeals last. Um, yeah, no, but I think Sorry. it also suggests. I think it also suggests that this is, you know, how important this is to the EFF that that they try to get a win here, mm. um, because of how important this stuff is to their their core messaging. And I think it just highlights for me again how. The project that the EFF in particular is engaged in is fundamentally at odds with our constitutional order. Mm. Uh, and this is why they lose these court cases. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think that's true. And I think I think they they sort of the, the whole image and their whole program is about doing things that are against the constitutional order, pushing, you know, being possibly guilty of hate speech or, or uh, um, etc. And but this is this is important, particularly in light of the expropriation without compensation leg legislation, which threatens legally to deprive people of their ownership of land much more um, in, in a processed way, but but quickly, relatively quickly. And so we have to we've been fighting that for for as long as God knows since it was first even thought of. Um, so you know we're going to have to turn our we turn our attention very much to how the ANC manages this and the horrible creation of the of of the of the land court. Um, it's not managed in the past. It's not managed land reform particularly well. And you know there's no reason other than capacity and money um, for this. So whether that'll get any better, I don't know. But I, th I think. As I say, the, the the sort of political and psychological blow of setting the the EFF back on a on a on a strictly criminal constitutional basis, I think, is is very important, and it 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 it's also a warning to the ANC, you know, that it can't kind of you know must be a little bit careful in its association with the EFF because that could that could lead them into trouble. Right, and I, I think the ANC recognizes that problem because. You know, ultimately, property is part of our constitution, the right to property, um, despite the best efforts in recent years of, of the ANC government and the EFF. And uh, what this kind of highlights is that this is a right that should be taken seriously. You know, if you were inciting people to murder or inciting people to, uh, you know, break into people's houses, that would be so, so much more kind of open and shut case, I think. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the EFF thought that they could win this in the court shows that uh, they thought that society is, was in such a way as that they, that we don't actually take the right to private property seriously. Mm -hmm. But the court seems to have proved them wrong in that case. Yeah. But I think just to, just to say that I think the sort of picking up from what you've said is the fact that 
it, it drives home, it does drive home the importance of ownership of property and also the, the, the sort of temptation to incite people to occupy land need, you know, is very likely not just going to be land owned by whites. It'll increasingly be land owned by blacks and probably land owned by black politicians. So, you know, it's, it's, right. it's, it's uh, the, the interests are growing. Let's put it that way. Exactly. It's, it's always framed by the EFF as, you know, some kind of, you know, do-it-yourself racial justice. Um, yeah. But it always ends up just being a cynical attempt to kind of stoke political fires and yes. intimidate people and uh, sort of act as a kind of uh, a threat. It's, 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 it's essentially a sort of mafia tactic um, more than yeah. anything else. And, I, and I, hope, I hope now that with this court ruling, it will be perhaps a little bit more seen as that in the mainstream. Yeah. Um, Very good win. Just, uh, just one kind of issue brought up by people in the comments here, and it is something that's kind of always the back of my mind about the EFF. If you look at the declared party funding every quarter, the EFF often doesn't register major donations. They get like sometimes one or two. It's usually less than a million rand. Maybe it's a million rand. Um, and yet uh, the EFF says that, you know, it often doesn't get donations and that it runs entirely off of its parliamentary stipend, which all parties get depending on how big they are. Um, and yet I've noticed around Johannesburg on every major road, there's those kind of large expensive posters advertising the EFF's 10th anniversary uh, uh, celebration. Um, and there's the fact that they were able to fight a legal battle through multiple courts across years, and they do this continuously, and they never seem to run out of money. Yeah. I think there's a really good opportunity for some investigative journalist um, and I was I, gonna I, say that. to go to go and actually just look at where this money is coming from, yeah. because there's so obviously something mismatched here. Uh, mm. The parliamentary stipend is not that big. There must be, <laughs> I think, more going on here. <laughs> Look, I mean, um, no, I was just going to say exactly the same thing. At this point, there, there is an investigation to be done on who funds the ANC and who funds the EFF. Um, I, I mean, you know, perhaps confirm our our, our thoughts that the, uh, the ANC is funded by Russia and hence, you know, we went across to try and make nuisances of ourselves and clearly did because even Putin got annoyed. Um, but, you know, I, I'm actually surprised it hasn't it, it hasn't been brought you'd up. I think so there'd far. be an incentive for the ANC to do it because uh, you'd think it'd be a very good way to kind of control Malema. Say, hey, we know where your money's coming from, and anytime you uh, start playing silly buggers with us in coalitions, we could, uh, you know, pull the chain on you. But uh, I think it speaks to the kind of the the incentive to protect the party at all costs. And the EFF, I think, is still seen by many people in the ANC as part of the party. Uh, I think it's also. I think it's also the case. I think it's also the case that uh, if the ANC can threaten the EFF, the EFF can threaten the ANC back regarding right. who's funding right. them. So it's, yeah, it's like it's, it's, it's literally like watching like like watching a, a B grade mafia television series with you know competing cartels of criminals. Unfortunately, that seems to be far more and more the description of the way things are going in SA. Okay, um, let's move on to our next topic. And this is kind of a bit of an obvious one um, in terms of the comments made here, but still quite interesting, I think. So 
uh, speaking before the Parliamentary Committee on, on Public Accounts, SCOPA, um, ESCOM's legal head, Mel Govender, said that uh, while she thought that some of the information contained in Andre Dorator's book is, quote, risky, she doesn't really think that ESCOM should be spending its time right now trying to institute legal proceedings against him. And then, in fact, it would be a much better use of that money uh, to try and go after money that has been stolen rather than try and sue Dorator for some kind of defamation. Um, she said, quote, I think some of the information shared is quite risky, but at this point in time, it's still under consideration. My view is that it's not the right place to place our energy and resources or costs into. She also revealed during her uh, deposition at, at Scopa that um, even though she's only been in the job for about 18 months, uh, she's actually going to be leaving ESCOM at the end of this month, so at the end of June. Uh, she said that it was a highly frustrating environment to work in. It's very difficult to be effective at ESCOM, especially coming from the corporate world where decisions are made very quickly. It's a very nice way of putting uh, it. Um, but Sarah, what do you make of this? It, you know, it seems like the brain drain kind of continues at ESCOM. Uh, they just yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad she gave that advice for exactly the reason she gave. Um, um, you know, going after him is not going to not going to resolve the anything um but i actually found her resignation and her explanation for it the most because although it was fairly um politely couched it was it was upfront and it was quite bold and she basically said it's a frustrating environment let's scope hear that that it's a frustrating environment it takes ages to get things done um you know having worked in the private sector you just not essentially not geared up for this kind of nonsense and it's it's actually a very sort of forthright way of saying ESCOM is a dreadful place to work at if you're a normal, ordinary, managerial human being. Um, you can't get anything and, done. Exactly. And that's one of those kind of slightly softer things that actually needs to be turned around if you want something like ESCOM to work. Um, mm -hmm. I think this is true actually for a lot of government departments where, you know, the pay might be good or you might get good benefits here or you might be protected from being fired or whatever. But if every day you dread to go to work because of how toxic the environment is, no one with any talent is going to stay there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so here we go for the argument for privatizing the supply of electricity. Um, you know, they say that perhaps transmission should remain in the hands of the government. And uh, But, you know, the problem is that the – I mean, I, I'm – I don't. Maybe there are no grounds for this, but I'm a bit suspicious about our sort of lack of load shedding. And I think they're trying to give the impression of you know that they are now you know, doing us a favour and they're getting it right. But I mean, there are a whole lot of factors, such as the excess wind available in in in, in winter. The, the 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 coal burns hotter in winter, and we're using good quality coal because we can't export it out of the country because we can't get it to the coast. Um, so it's it's <laughs> you know. It's not. Uh, it's not exactly. You know, Minister of Electricity's come in, and we're going to do. You know what? What no one's done before us. But she's essentially summed up the reasons why the private sector should be involved, and maybe the whole the era of ESCOM is over because the nature of the demands on electricity supply are different. Never mind the corruption and the theft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it just has to change. It's 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 a bit like any business. Periodically, at points in a business's life, you have to reinvent yourself. Um, and, you know, ESCOM's an old business, and 
particularly in the circumstances, a bit of reinvention will do well. But it comes to the issue of this agreement between business and ESCOM, and sorry, a business and the government to assist them to deal with ESCOM and trains and um, crime. And that is, I, I, my impression is still that the, the, the private sector is not going to have enough control of the processes to actually right. get things done. And I, I mean, that's always been the case in the past, and I, I very much suspect it's going to be the, the, the case now. And, um, you know, she, here's this woman who comes from the private sector saying it's impossible to work in ESCOM because it's, it's so slow and inefficient and annoying. And it, it, it also reminds yeah. me a little bit of when you're in um, school, you know, particularly when you're younger and you get put in a group project, uh, and government and business are a little bit like that right now. And government is the, the 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 kid at school who's very keen to issue orders and tell everyone else what to do um, and to take full credit for the assignment, but uh, is not really going to do much to help you. And in fact, if they do anything, it's probably just going to be to make things worse. <laughs> so I, I suspect gov uh, business are once again going to be burned um, by trying yeah. to rescue government from itself, uh, yeah. which is a, a long, it's something that's happened so many times in South Africa at this point. Um, yeah, <laughs> really. And, and, kind of, and of course, uh, the business is raising money for this to to help the government. And you're thinking, what a cheek! You know, I mean, you know, business can raise money, but you know, that money would be better spent by business directly assisting the citizenry. Um, and it's it's, I'm, 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 I think it'll come to naught, unfortunately. Indeed. Um, last point I just want to make is how her comments here about how they really shouldn't be trying to sue Dorator, it kind of reveals just how silly all of this has gotten, which is that the discussion is now about whether Dorator lied or not, or you know, whether Dorator is credible or not, and he's going to be taken to court, and the ANC is going to try and sue him, and ESCOM is going to try and sue him, and it's just a complete distraction from the actual changes that need to take place at ESCOM. Um, everything that you know we've talked about, like ending ra uh, racial preferential procurement, um, but just down to the management reforms and going after stolen money, uh, that's all being swept to the side so that we can have a personality clash and a fight about whether, you know, Dorator is, is, is the hero or the villain. It's, 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 a, it's an exercise in sort of chest thumping and um, posturing. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so silly. Yeah, no, it's, it's pathetic is what it is. Um, but anyway, okay, let's move on to our next story. Um, I don't know how much we have to say about this one, but I just kind of can't quite keep this one out of my mind. I thought it was actually one of the most read stories on Times Live. And uh, anyone who's been following the news will know that uh, former minister Tina Jamat-Peterson um, passed away relatively recently, a few weeks ago. And her family have been pretty quiet about the cause of her death. In fact, they said they didn't know. Um, it came out after a little while. Um, this was a little bit strange, but, you know, it's, it's, people die sometimes uh, unexpectedly. However, it seems that um, while uh, her, as her autopsy is being, uh, the res final results are being awaited, the police have decided on Tuesday that they're going to, in fact, open an inquest docket into her death, which, while it doesn't say that that's, that, that, that means that she didn't die from natural causes, it's, could be an indication that she didn't die from natural causes. Um, so the implication here being that maybe there was foul play involved. 
we don't know that yet. It's far too early to say, but it's still a little bit ominous because recently she had a public tangle with the currently suspended public protector, Pusisizwe Mkwabane, uh, whose husband accused her of being one of the ANC MPs who had tried to solicit a bribe from Busisizwe. Um Sora is... Am, am I being insane and conspiratorial by thinking that there might be something yeah. nasty? Well, look, as long as, as long as the currently suspended uh, um, public protector is involved, uh, I would say conspiracy the theories should abound. Um, I mean, I watched some of her performance when she gave the press conference about the this alleged bribe of of uh, three people, including uh, um, Jamal Peterson, and um, I mean, it, it was it was almost surreal. It was like it some of it. I mean, it it seems to suggest that, that there had been some uh, foul play, but. When she came to present the the evidence, it was unclear, and you you couldn't hear the tapes. And she was very very certain, very uh, flamboyant, very well dressed. You know, she, it was performative, if I can use that word. Um, and you know, the problem is with with Sarah, she's so bad that you don't, you know, you if she has a possible case, you're not going to. Your first thought is not going to go in her favour. Let's let's put it that way, but. You know, it's it's uh, we we um, had a, a presentation by advocate Paul Hoffman, um, who was one of the first people to to tangle with her, and so he gave a history of his experience with her and 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 just in particularly the ABSA case that she wanted to have the constitution rewritten over. I mean, that, that, I remember that was just absolutely extraordinary. Um, and he thinks that really what she's doing is whatever she's doing is designed Stalingrad tactics to get her to her retirement in October because she then, I think, becomes entitled to – I can't remember because we were talking about a number of people in a similar position, but either obviously a very attractive pension or a very if being a, a seven-year period person, very, like something like 10 million rand gratuity. Um, so obviously if, if – I mean – if that's if she gets found guilty, or even if things don't look like they're going well for her, that gratuity can be withheld. But the, the more she can slow up the process, she's. I think she's essentially trying to get as little out that could be the basis for withholding the gratuity. I think the problem, however, is that the amount of court cases she's lost and the fact that she doesn't know her from her elbow has been apparent for a very long time. And what Paul Hoffman pointed out, which has been my bone of contention, they've now changed the rules. You now, you could be an advocate or attorney who's been admitted with 10 years' experience. It never required the experience. So someone like Busisiwe became could become applied to become an advocate uh, in the High Court of South Africa without having practiced law a day in her life. And by all accounts, she never practiced a day in it in her life and <laughs> that's quite evident from her record i think how many court cases she's lost uh yeah I, look you know even just a couple of years ago if you had said something like uh, maybe there's something afoot here Jamal peterson's death i would have said ah yeah but probably not these things are normally more simple than they appear but um with the with the increasing prevalence to my eyes of political assassination in the country i uh i must say this does concern me very Deeply, and I and I hope more details do come out. I hope, I do hope that this those details are also made public. 
um, yeah. because I think it's important that we know whether this was a natural death or, or not. Yeah. Um, because it, it, you know, if it's not, um, there's a much bigger problem that we really need to consider closely here. Um, as well, let's put it this way: there's a, there's, a, there's, a much, there's a much bigger problem that uh, uh, that the ANC has to concern itself with. You know, if if, if one of their high ups retired, you know, she 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 chaired a committee after, you know, despite being a crap minister, I mean, she she chaired a committee, and if she's been whacked, well, right, and she was in the Roma Pausa faction too. Um, so she's not she's not on the downward she's not on the losing side here of the internal yeah. ANC power struggle. Anyway, uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, see if anything Her happens. Final redeployment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Let's very quickly go over this one. I don't know how much there is to say on this one, but uh, it's kind of worth pointing out. Um, and that was the surprising arrest of someone connected to the Rwandan genocide in the Cape recently. A guy called uh, Fulgens Kayashema, who was uh, uh, who has been charged with the by the International Criminal Court of uh, participating in the death of two thousand people at a church in Rwanda during the genocide in nineteen ninety four. Um, I think he was a police captain or a police officer at the time, and I seem to remember the charge against him was that he he either ordered someone to go and fetch petrol or personally did it himself and set this church with thousands of people in it, hiding in it alight. Um, so he's charged with an absolutely horrific crime. Uh, and he's apparently been hiding out in, in South Africa. He's, I think, 62 now. Um, he was uh, under a false name and identity in the Western Cape, working as a security guard on a wine farm. Uh, after a tip-off, um, so that, uh, by international authorities, South African police arrested him and have charged him with 44, sorry, 54 charges um, of everything from fraud, from his identity to contravening immigration uh, laws. He has decided that he is going to plead, um, uh, to, I think, not guilty for this, but try and get around the process by applying for asylum. According to his lawyer, my client fears for his life if and when extradited. Hence the reason for his asylum application, which has been filed today. Sora, what do you make of the story? I mean, the the uh, I think it's kind of it's 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 the genocide that actually has had a very long arm um, mm. in in shaping the kind of the modern world. Um, also, in discrediting the UN in particular mm, is the Rwanda genocide, yeah. uh, which you know is one of the most shocking events actually I think in Africa's history and. Uh, when he says he fears for his life, we've seen that Paul Kagame's regime is, shall we say, not light-handed. So I think that's a very genuine fear. Um, what do you make of all this? Oh, I, th I mean, I think I think uh, uh, Kagame would have him assassinated, you know, on, on the turn uh, because um, I think Michaela Rong wrote some articles recently. She's done a lot of work on uh, that area. And she said, um, you know, she said that whenever she tried to give a talk in a in a in a European capital, she, you know, invariably it, it, it would be cancelled because of fear by the restaurant would be held at by the owners or whatever property it was. Um, 
you know that they, they were fearing they would be killed, and 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 and, and his death squads are fairly, you know, it's 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 fairly clear that that they do exist. I mean, his his former security security chief who fell out with him was was assassinated in Johannesburg a couple of years ago. Um, right, so in, in a hotel, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, um, I, I, I can understand the application for asylum. I mean, I'd rather face 54 counts of criminal counts in a South African court and, and probably imprisonment in a South African jail than take my chances in Rwanda. Um, I mean, Kagame is a, is a, is a brutal character and don't, I don't hold out much hope for him. Although I must say that uh, out of, you know, if indeed... Uh, this guy is responsible for what the International Criminal Court is accuses him of. I can't say that I would be particularly mm -hmm. cut out uh, if Kagame gets him. In fact, it would be much better than some of the other people that Kagame has tangled with, uh, including the, um, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Hotel Rwanda, but uh, the the hero of that story actually fell afoul of the Kagame regime and was imprisoned in Rwanda mm -hmm. until quite recently. I think he was uh, just released from jail due to um, requests by, by I think the Belgians but uh, yeah no uh, horrific stuff and and kind of shocking that this guy was able to just you know hide in this strange place and and, and amazing that they found him um, mm. you know wine farm in the Western Cape no one would think that that's where someone maybe guilty of genocide would be hiding uh, well I suppose history. what's likely to have happened is that you know he's been there for a long time and his past will have come out at some point and some of the people he worked with may not have been happy with him for one or other reason or they think, you know, a guy like this shouldn't get away with murdering 2,000 people. So it probably was in it was was bound to happen. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I think, as I said, I think he's very likely to be assassinated, but in a way, rotting in a jail has a certain appeal I can put it that well, yeah, way. it would be good for him to go before the International Criminal Court and actually, you know, face the evidence. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that's all the time we have for today. We actually did a full-length episode. Um, so thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope that you found the show interesting, and we will be back uh, next week on The Daily Friends Show. Cheers, everyone, and have a good day.